Hey, welcome to the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor and psychology teacher. I own Mindful Counseling in Orem, Utah, and I'm on a mission to break down mental health stigma. Therapy Thoughts is a podcast all about helping you love yourself and make peace with your mind, body, and food. I'll share some education, tips, interviews, and tools from my clinical experience so you can improve your mental health. Stay tuned as we change the mental health game and talk all about therapy. What's up, my Therapy Thoughts fam? This is episode 16 of the Therapy Thoughts podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm going to talk to you today about depression. This is going to be a fast-paced educational podcast episode. I'm going to treat this like an abnormal psychology lecture. So get out your journal, take some notes, hit pause if you need to. I'm going to give you tons of facts and figures. So let's jump right into depression. A major depressive episode is not just a day by day feeling of being bummed out or sad sometimes. And depressive episode involves a period of time. It typically lasts two weeks, but usually longer, where you are sad, where you feel an empty mood most of the day, nearly every day. So it's that consistency of symptoms that is going to mark an official depressive episode versus waking up feeling bummed out one day, but then you kind of bounce back and feel good the next day, right? That would fall more under the normal category versus and a diagnosable major depressive episode is going to be at least two weeks in length where you're bummed, sad, empty, most the time, every day. So it's this lengthy period where you're depressed at different times of the day, almost every day of the week. You also are not going to experience pleasure doing things that you used to do. That's going to be a major depressive episode. We want to differentiate that from a major depressive disorder. A major depressive disorder or just major depression, it usually involves a longer period during which a person has multiple major depressive episodes. So at first we defined major depressive episodes because when you have a recurring episodic depressive experience, that's major depressive disorder. You typically see a two-month interval of normal moods and then having you know separate distinct major depressive episodes for it to be considered a disorder. A major depressive disorder can be diagnosed. However, in someone who has only had one episode of depression, it could still be considered a disorder. So this is where clinical judgment comes in. I don't want you to think your depression is not valid or you're not sick enough if you don't meet these specific symptoms or diagnostic criteria. Because That's one major barrier we have to people getting treatment all the time, whether I'm treating eating disorders, depression, anxiety, whatever it may be, everyone thinks they're not sick enough. So I'm here to say you don't have to be worse off for it to be valid. You can have depressive symptoms. You can have a depressive disorder and still get out of bed and still go to work. Um, You may not be suicidal and absolutely still suffering from depression. So please, as we go through this, don't use this as means to um, disvalidate your experience. I do just want to point out kind of what we typically look for. Major depressive disorder can be mild, moderate, or severe. So anytime I talk about mental health disorders, I want you to look at a spectrum. 
I want you to visualize a spectrum from mild all the way up to severe disorder. And you may have these symptoms on a very mild level. Maybe you don't meet the criteria for a full-blown disorder, right? Or you could have all the symptoms of the disorder and the most severe outcomes of that. And that would be major depressive disorder, probably severe with psychotic symptoms, something like that. But there's a spectrum and you don't have to be all or nothing. You can have symptoms of this and still really suffer. But they're all real. They're all valid. You can have depressive symptoms that may be chronic. They can occur for a long period of time. They can be specific to a postpartum stage after having a child. Um, depression in some people occurs more in fall or winter. That's going to be seasonal affective disorder. Uh, all of these are different forms of depression. But if you are having any of these symptoms, I want you to pay attention and know that there's a name for it, that you are not alone, and there is help. There is hope. There's a lot of other forms of depressive disorders if we're going through the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, there's one called the Disruptive Mood Dysregulation Disorder. That's for kids between the ages of 6 to 18. If they are having recurrent temper outbursts that are severe and well out of proportion for you know a given situation or their age group, that may be something you want to get assessed by a professional. Um, there's another new formal depressive disorder. It's called premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So this is something that needs further study, um, or at least it did in the DSM-4, but now in the DSM-5, it is recognized as a disorder. So if you have severe mood drops, if you get really depressed before starting your menstrual cycle, that's what we're talking about. Um, I'm not going to talk about bipolar disorder today or mania or hypomania. I'll save that for another um, podcast, but that's also a mood disorder I want you to pay attention to. But today, for the sake of focus, we're just talking about depression, the unipolar, just one side of the mood disorder spectrum. So as many as 20% of adults and 50% of youth report recent symptoms of depression. 50% of youth, that's half. 20% of adults. So the lifetime prevalence of major depressive disorder is 16.6%. And 6.7% of adults have had the disorder in the previous year. And so the lifetime prevalence of dysthymia is 2.5%. Dysthymia is like low-grade chronic depression. Uh, I think of Eeyore as a good kind of character profile of someone who might have dysthymia. It's not full-blown depression, but it's just this low-grade low energy, kind of bummed out state of mind. And it's at least two years you have these symptoms. That's 2.5% of people. 1.5% uh, of adults have had the disorder in the previous year. And the prevalence of major depression and dysthymia in adolescence is about 11.7%. We see severe depression and dysthymia usually begin in late adolescence or early adulthood, especially the mid-20s. That's kind of the height of onset, but it can occur at any age. And you're going to see different pockets of high risk. So like postpartum period is high risk. Big transitions in life might be high risk. Are you recently married? Do you recently have children, even if you didn't give birth? 
or maybe you're a man. Um, you can also have depression happen just in these big transitions. Maybe you moved, maybe you lost a job. So age is one factor, but there's a lot of other factors we look at that could increase your risk for depression. Most people have uh, depression for several years before they seek treatment, and most adults aren't diagnosed until they're between the ages of 30 and 59. But think about onset happening in late adolescence and early 20s. That's a long time to suffer without a diagnosis and without support. Um, We see depression in females more than males. Female adolescents and adults are generally depressed at twice the rate of males. And depression in females increases significantly around the beginning of adolescence. We know there's a lot of things that correlate with this based on lifespan science. And so puberty, hitting puberty at an early age is a risk factor for depression for women. Um, Also, the way that we are socialized, we are more likely to report depression. Usually when I'm teaching this topic in abnormal psychology, we kind of like to have a discussion about what's going on. Is it really women and are having, you know, depression at twice the rate of men or are men just not reporting that? Are they socialized to ignore and suppress and rather express depression through anger or withholding? Um, So I really want you to have some critical thinking when we talk about depression and uh, the sex differences. We also know that women are more likely to have a first episode of depression, have longer episodes of depression, and have more recurrent episodes of depression than men. Um, The gender difference may relate to the frequency of stressors or other events in women's lives, but women also become depressed during certain seasons, like winter, and they're more likely than men to have anxious depression. Um, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So just think about you know the cultural implications when it comes to depression um, and why men and women may experience it different than one, from one another. Whenever we talk about depression, we have to talk about suicide. Suicide is not only something we're concerned about after someone has completed the act. Think of this like a spectrum. Suicide refers to killing oneself, and it's commonly associated with depression and bipolar disorders. But not just suicide attempts or acts are what I'm concerned about for you, my clients, Um, but suicidal ideation. That refers to thoughts about death, thoughts about killing yourself, thoughts about funerals, and other morbid ideas related to one's death. Um, That's something that occurs during depressive episodes that we really want to watch out for. Suicidal behavior, sometimes we call this parasuicidal behavior, or deliberate self-harm. That refers to any self-destructive behavior that may or may not indicate someone's wish to die. Um... Sometimes it has no connection to that. Other times it does. A suicide attempt is any severe self-destructive behavior with intent to kill oneself. We got to look at all of these. And I think one message I really hope hit home, hits home today is the research, the science, my professional experience, my personal experience. We have to talk about this. It is unethical to talk about depression and not talk about suicide. I know it's uncomfortable. I know you know someone who's died by suicide or you know of someone who's lost someone by suicide. We have to talk about it. There is a myth that says by ignoring it, we'll prevent it. But that's just not true. 
Um, talking about this is one way that we can open up the conversation and give people a chance to reach out for help and to ask for support. We know that this is uh, the 10th leading cause of death overall. Um, it's third among young adults and it's common among, common among the elderly. We, we got to talk about it. Um, suicide often occurs in people with bipolar disorder between 11 and 15 percent and it also occurs with people with a depressive disorder between 15 and 19 percent and so when we talk about depression we want to ask questions about suicide we want to dig we want to offer support we want to keep an open conversation going one thing that prevents this type of discussion is stigma and there is stigma associated with depressive disorders uh, they may, anyone who's dealt with depression has felt the impact from that in their life. And they may experience substantial stigma given the debilitating nature of their symptoms. And it's wrong. Many people have said that family members and friends are unsupportive because they equate clinical depression with quote unquote normal sadness or with an emotional state that's just going to pass with time, Right. Um, so part of this is because family members or friends, they don't see outward signs of the problem. So it's easy to kind of swipe away. Or maybe you hear the stigmatizing, misunderstood thought that says, just be happy. Just be positive. Just snap out of it. Right? So a lot of people with depression don't dare tell people because they realize they're going to be invalidated or they won't be taken seriously. And so this is one part of depression that we got to knock off. We got to recognize depression is not a freaking choice. It's like any other disease. If my client comes in and they have cancer and maybe they've been in remission and we see it come back, do we blame them? No, depression is a disease too. It's not a moral failure. This isn't the client's fault. This isn't something that measures someone's worthiness or willpower or work ethic. It's mental illness. We got to stop blaming people for this. We got to stop the stigma. It's deadly. And so I'm serious when I say that we have to stop discrimination because of our fear of depression. We got to stop the stigma around taking antidepressant medication. We got to stop the stigma around new moms who are drowning in postpartum. That's the problem, is the stigma and the judgment and the discrimination around people who are truly suffering. So we're going to hop onto a break, and I'm going to come back and talk about treatment, my friends. Before I jump into treatment, I want to explain the symptoms you're going to look for when it comes to clinical depression. Uh, technically, you need five or more of these to be diagnosed, but remember, this is dimensional. You may have four out of five, and that doesn't mean you don't have depression. You're still suffering. You're still in distress. But these are the things you're going to want to look for. Depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. You're going to have this subjective report. You feel sad. You feel blue. You feel down in the dumps. You feel empty. I hear that a lot. Um, you're going to have those observations made by others. You look tearful. You look like you're about to cry. Um, if you're looking at children and adolescents, they may be more irritable or cranky rather than sad. Um, some adults look like they're angry. 
Um, there may be more rage, stuff like that. Another symptom is diminished interest or pleasure. We see that in almost all activities, let's say you really used to love soccer, you're no longer interested in that. No interest in hobbies, sports, or other things. Um, another symptom would be weight change. You're not dieting, um, weight gain. So you're going to see significant changes in weight. And this is going to be specific to like more than a 5% change in body weight within a month. Um, you may see a big decrease or increase in appetite. Another one is insomnia. So it's hard to get to sleep, hard to stay asleep. Or the opposite would be hypersomnia. You're sleeping too much nearly every day. Another symptom, more days than not, you can't sit still. It's hard to, uh, you know, contain yourself. You're restless, you're pacing, you're picking at your clothes, uh, you're agitated. Uh, the opposite, which is also a symptom, would be kind of the slowing of your movements. Really slow speech, quiet speech. Uh, another symptom, fatigue, tiredness, loss of energy nearly every day. Just things like washing, dressing, um, they can seem really difficult and hard to do and they take longer than usual. Another symptom, a feeling of worthlessness or excessive guilt. You're ruminating over past feelings, past failings, like you're kind of stuck. Uh, another one, another symptom, diminished ability to think. It's hard to concentrate. You're indecisive. Um, you're going to look distracted. You may have memory problems. Another symptom, and the last one, uh, recurrent thoughts of death. So not just fear of dying, but suicidal ideas, and not necessarily a plan, um, but thoughts. That's the ideation we talked about earlier. You may have a suicide attempt. You may have a specific plan. You may have means. If that's the case, please reach out for help. Talk to your therapist. Um, you can call 911. You can call the suicide prevention hotline. We got to talk. If you're having those thoughts, you don't have to be alone. Um, so those are the symptoms. Let's talk about treatment, my friends. Bottom line, when it comes to depression, your best bet, the research supports medication plus therapy. So many antidepressants are going to work with your serotonin. They're called SSRIs. They're popular because they affect serotonin-based areas of the brain and not all your other neurotransmitter systems. Um, there's different types of medications out there. You can get with a psychiatrist. You can get with your primary care doctor. Maybe your counselor will have a recommendation of someone who can prescribe medication to you. Uh, you may want to get with a uh, specific person. You may want to get on their wait list, but ask around for referrals, medication, um, can really help certain clients and may be just what they need. Antidepressants work well for people with depression. They can take between uh, four to six weeks to kick in, so you got to give them adequate time to do their job. Most of the time, I'm working with clients in therapy to help them come to terms with this and look at the pros and cons. I don't have a personal bias or agenda with meds, but I definitely have met clients where that was the missing piece. For other people, they don't need it. Um, Antidepressants are less effective if a person has psychotic features. Um, antidepressants by themselves are effective in about 60 to 70% of cases. And if you compare that to controls, it's about 30%. So meds work, y'all. Uh, we want to remove the stigma from that. I'm not saying meds are right for everyone, 
but they are effective for people they work for. Other things we want to look at, light therapy. Light therapy consists of having a person sit before a bright light, um, and it's somewhere between 30 and 120 minutes per day during the winter. And more than half of people with seasonal affective disorder, seasonal depression, they respond positively to light therapy. Um, it can also be really useful for people who don't have seasonal depression, but rather just more of a typical depressive disorder. Uh, you're going to buy, you can find these anywhere. Go look on Amazon. You can find them at Bed Bath & Beyond. Sometimes they're called happy lights or light boxes, but we want the light be, to be between 2,000 and 10,000 lux. It's a unit of illumination. Um, talk with your therapist about adding this to your treatment. There's a lot of different behavioral therapeutic interventions that work. Um, when it comes to depression, we want a lot of education. We want to increase daily activity and exercise. We want to reward progress. And so behavioral activation, that's what we're talking about. Um, we want to make sure that people have someone in their life reinforcing them for their active, non-pressed behaviors. We want to reinforce social and pro-social behaviors. Uh, we want to help social skills training. So this is especially effective for adolescents with depression. We want to help them interact socially, learn to make eye contact, smile more, discussing topics other than depression. This is all the stuff that would help in therapy. One of the most effective uh, evidence-based treatments in therapy is cognitive therapy. It's one of the main types of treatment for people with mood disorders, but it helps you change your way of reasoning about the environment. It helps you see the positive and realistic side of things as well as the negative. Cognitive therapy for depression entails looking at evidence for and against your thoughts. Um, it helps you build uh, your testing abilities for the chances of things going wrong. It helps challenge your thinking errors and stop catastrophizing and looking for worst case scenarios. So the main goal of cognitive therapy for depression is to increase your ability to challenge your negative thoughts and to develop a sense of control. Some part of your life is going to be within your control and we want you to have some predictability while also building tolerance for that which is out of your control and unpredictable. Uh, cognitive therapy for depression seems and appears to be as effective as medication based on testing and trials. Um, mindfulness. Mindfulness is such an effective therapeutic technique. So when someone is depressed and they are numb and they have no feeling anymore and they just don't care, they have this anhedonia, they just are checked out. Mindfulness is the recommended course of action. What we want to do is help you experience the present moment rather than dwell on past failures or negative expectations about the future. If you're doing mindfulness, we want to encourage you to view your sad moods and your thoughts and your feelings or your numbness as events that pass through the mind and not indicators of reality. We're going to pause here and take a break and I'll come back and talk more about mindfulness. Mindfulness is such a powerful intervention because it's all about non-judgment of whatever's happening. So when you're in a depressive episode and you're laying in bed and it feels like you have a literal 1,000 pound weight holding you down 
and you almost just can't move. And you're really focused on this moment, but in a very judgmental and ruminating way. We want you to use mindfulness, which says pay attention to this present moment without judgment and just notice it like it's passing by. Pay attention to it. Embrace it. Accept it. And that's what we want to do in response to the numbness, the sadness, the lack of feeling, any distress. We want to approach it with curiosity and mindful awareness. And so any therapist doing a mindful approach is going to help you look at all of these experiences and get curious about them rather than accepting them as true reality. Um, It's really important to remember that depression is a liar, that just because you think or feel these things doesn't make them true. Depression lies and says it's never going to go away. There is no hope. You will always feel this. But the funny thing is, is there's always evidence to the contrary, that it always passes, that even within any given day, there's ups and downs in mood. So part of depression is this sense of permanency, and it just isn't. Um, and having that to hang on to will allow you to practice mindfulness with a little more acceptance to say, okay, I notice I'm having this thought. Hmm, interesting. What's that feel like in my body? Another therapeutic approach is interpersonal therapy. This focuses on repairing problematic relationships and coping with the loss of close relationships. Um, if you're dealing with grief, if you're having you know, transitional problems or relationship problems because of depression, that's something else we would do. If uh, you are hesitant to get on medication, um, if you're hesitant to go to therapy, I would suggest that you practice mindfulness and meditation at home, that you implement this light therapy, that you implement exercise. Um, something else you can do if you are feeling numb and past feeling is start a gratitude journal. Because even if you can't feel anything and you can't feel happy, you can still feel gratitude. And so there's things you can do on your own if you don't want to try a lot of the suggestions I've given here. A gratitude journal is something you can you can focus on every day in a depressed space that will create movement, create focus. It'll challenge your negative thinking and challenge all the thinking errors that are getting you down and help move you towards recovery because that's what we want to do. So how do we prevent this, my friends? I think before we can really talk about that, we got to understand why we get depressed. And so I want to help you understand what contributes to depression. Now, anytime we talk about mental illness, it is a combo meal of environment and genetics. We know that genetics account for about 37 to 50% of depressive symptoms. That's a good amount. It's a highly heritable illness. Uh, Genetics play a big role in whether or not you can have depression. Now, if we're talking about depression or any mental illness, you could be born with a genetic predisposition. That does not mean you're going to have it. You may notice in your family line, a lot of people have depressive disorders, You will inherit that vulnerability. You'll inherit that predisposition, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'll see it manifest because environmental triggers are what will kind of make that manifestation happen. Um, For some people, it doesn't take much. It could just be simply, you know, your birth order or a traumatic event. For others, it takes a lot more for that genetic vulnerability to manifest into full-blown, you know, depression. 
So it's helpful to understand there's always this, this dance between genetics and environment for whether you have mental illness symptoms or not. Um, but if you have first-degree relatives of people <clears throat> with depression, uh, you're more likely to have depression than the general population. We know that people, like through twin studies, um, it's suggested that depressive disorders have a strong genetic basis. Um, identical twin males and females have been found um, that they have higher rates of depression, you know, with identical genetic material. <clears throat> We know that there are several genes for depression that have been implicated, especially on chromosome 17, and those may be involved with serotonin production. Um, there's a lot going on with genetics. I'm not a geneticist, but I, I can tell you what we do know, that this is more proof that it's not a moral, failing, a moral failure on your part or you know, a matter of willpower, um, that there are genetics and brain features involved in this, that people with depressive disorders may have differences in brain areas affected by genetic predispositions. So people with these disorders often display reduced activity and size changes in their prefrontal and other cortical areas of the brain. Um, other brain areas implicated in mood disorders, there's going to be the amygdala and hippocampus. Um, you may have smaller or damaged brain features. And so... This isn't just be positive. We're <laughs> talking about genetics and brain features. Um, I like to compare this to vision changes in life, um, that you may develop the need for glasses as you age or go through developmental changes. The same would be with depression. You're not going to blame someone if they have changes in their eyesight. It's the same with mental illness. Um, it's, it's not an issue of morality or worthiness or intention. There's a lot of other neurochemical and hormonal features that we don't have time to go over. Um, so I won't go through those. I'll quickly mention a couple environmental risk factors, stressful life events. Uh, people who become depressed may have experienced major uncontrollable and undesirable events. And those significant events can trigger the eruption of depression. Um, even if they don't have a strong genetic predisposition, there's a lot of cognitive factors that can increase your risk for depression. Cognitive distortions. Maybe you have an overly distorted pessimistic view of themselves and the world and the future. You might have thoughts that repeat throughout the day, a lot of hopelessness. Uh, you might assume that events will last a long time. You might believe that events will affect most areas of your life. These are all kind of cognitive aspects of depression. You might excessively blame yourself or other people. You might have low self-esteem. You might have learned helplessness. These are all cognitive theories related to depression. That's, that's where therapy really steps in and helps people bounce back. If we can manage the impact of environmental stressors and then you couple the biological factors using medication, I think that's why that's the kind of the one-two punch. Interpersonal factors. If you're having difficulties at school, at work, in your marriage, communication problems, um, all of that can increase depressive episodes. Family features. Children of parents with depression, they have more of a chance to have the disorder themselves. Um, that's part genetics, but also problems in the family are also a likely factor. Attachment, which I'm not going to go into for the sake of time, but impaired attachment to your parents, especially at an early age, can lead to later depression. Cultural factors. Uh, 
the rates of depression vary across areas of the world and even among subgroups in our country. Uh, But one possible explanation is that depression and other mental disorders are especially high among immigrant and migrant populations. Um, There's environmental and genetic factors that can kind of play into that. Um, There's going to be little pockets throughout uh, our country where you're going to see higher rates of depression, and we could go into all of that and into why that is. So lots to think about here. My best suggestion, consider medication, consider therapy, because the research is really profound when it comes to that. But there's a lot of things I mentioned that you can do on your own. I highly recommend adopting a meditation program, implementing mindfulness, learning self-compassion, learning resilience, learning how to bounce back from all the never-ending, just that never-ending bully voice in your head, building resilience against that, building support, reaching out for help. Um, And always, 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 if you are feeling suicidal, if you are having thoughts of ending your life, if you feel alone and like there is no hope, I want you to take this very seriously and to think, what if depression's a liar? What if it's not true? I want you to call the suicide hotline. I want you to tell anyone you know. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. You can also Google the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can text someone. You can tweet them. You can message them. You can call them. Um... If you were to reach out to a therapist and you're in crisis, that may not get you the help you need right away. You can always go to a hospital. You can always call the police. Have a safety plan if you are actively depressed and suicidal. Who can you call any day, any night? If you are in crisis, you can also text GO to 741741 and you can chat with a trained crisis counselor 24-7. My friends, this is heavy stuff. Take a deep breath. Depression's part of life for so many of us. I hope a takeaway today is that information is power. There is hope. Depression's a freaking liar. There's a lot of things we can do. There's always options. And if you are in crisis, there's always more hope. May you be well, my friends. I appreciate you tuning in and supporting the Therapy Thoughts podcast. If you want to dive deeper into intuitive eating and body image and self-love, head over to tiffanyrow.com. It's the hub of all of my courses, the podcast, my merch, and information about doing counseling and coaching with me. I hope you guys stick around for more. We have lots of exciting interviews and thought leaders coming onto the podcast. So until next time, may you be well.